remember your name is glorious. The name of your Son is glorious. We come to give full honour and praise to the wonderful and beautiful and powerful name of Jesus. Lord, we wanna encounter you tonight. We wanna see your face. We wanna see your glory. God, we don't wanna leave here unchanged. Reveal yourself to us. Lord, if there's anything here tonight that is not your words, I pray that it would fall on deaf ears. I pray that you would seal my mouth. Let words that are mine only hit barren soil. But Father, if these are your words, quicken them to our hearts. Bring life to our mortal bodies. Father, we want more of you. Come now by your Spirit. Fill us. Open our eyes, open our ears to see and to hear you. In Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Feel free to grab a seat there. It's been great to be on this series that we're doing, uh, The Seven Signs of Life. Signs of life sounds like we're going into outer space and trying to find um, aliens or something, but actually we're looking for seven signs of life in the Gospel of John. And I love that name actually, because signs of life is really vital signs. Hey, vital signs, which is in medical lingo, I guess the sort of things that you're looking for to check if someone is actually alive, if their body is self-sustaining, if it's functioning properly. So you've got things like, correct me, sorry, medical people, if I get this completely wrong, but things like body temperature, pulse, breathing rate, bl blood pressure, um, these are important things to gauge whether we have life or whether our body is sustaining itself. The Gospel of John has seven of these. So by the end of this series, if you're not sure whether you're alive or dead, then I'm not sure what will help you. Um, but we're gonna check, are we healthy or are we in a critical condition? And tonight we're looking at a particular passage in John 5 that is about a lame man who goes to this pool called Bethesda, which is just north of the temple in Jerusalem. What we're gonna see in this passage is that we're gonna be looking at the problem of knowing God. And we're gonna see that Jesus wants to reveal God to us, but we need to check are we prepared to see him? So we're gonna dive into John 5, 1 to 18. This should come up on the screen. Um, I won't get you to pull out your Bibles in the dark. That's okay. So here we go. John 5, 1 to 18. This is God's word. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there was... Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, 
do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, it's important to understand here what this context is. There's this pool, the Bethesda pool, which apparently, according to um, the belief of the time, every now and then it would get stirred. There'd be some sort of spontaneous movement or unexplained something that was happening with the water. And when that happened, they believed that the first person to get into the water would be healed of whatever illness they had. So this is what he's saying. He's saying, I've no one to help me get into the pool when it's stirred. He's lame, he can't get in. And when he tries to get in, someone always gets there first. Then Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told Jesus that it was, told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is God's word to us tonight. I don't know if you ever find yourself reading these stories in the Bible and thinking, how thick are these people? How can they not see what's right in front of them? How can they not see who Jesus is? I find myself thinking that quite a bit and I always have this counterthought that says that's a very dangerous thing to be thinking. What we're gonna see tonight is that in this passage, we've got one sign of life and two signs of death. So we're gonna be able to check our pulse tonight as we look at these signs. Just quickly, this is the cast. There's a great multitude of sick people. Um, they're all looking to get healed. There's one person in particular, the lame man, who is the worst of the worst. He can't even get into the pool. Then we've got um, the Jews. There are actually quite a lot of them in Jerusalem at the time because there's a big festival going on. And we have Jesus. And for a location, we've got the Bethesda pool and the Jerusalem temple. What we're gonna see tonight is that it is possible to think that we know God while not knowing Him at all. 
we're gonna see that there are two ways that lead to death. But listen to this, Jesus is committed to showing us who God really is so that we can have life. So here, we're gonna jump into the first sign of death. So we're looking at a way of living that will suck the life out of you. A wrong way of understanding who God is that will drain life from us rather than give us life. So this is the first, the first sign of death and it's religious superstition. And this is not something that's just relegated to the past or just the religious. This is something that we see all around our culture. Um, it's the, the lucky charms, the crystals, uh, doing things in a particular way, putting our requests out to the universe. I actually heard of, um, in a particular workplace, a lady going around with a spray bottle and spraying around the place and around people to dispel the bad energy. might seem weird, but it's these sort of strange tokens, these, these ideas that our hearts seem to latch onto to give us a sense that they'll maybe do some good or eventually some good will come of them. We try and come up with systems of good luck that we hope in. I've got some words of wisdom from my um, 10-year-old self. I was in grade five, I remember this clearly. It was a market day and I was playing marbles, fairly engrossed in that. And there was a big raffle going on as well. A hamper to be won, I could care less, I was playing marbles. What happened was these kids came up to me while I'm playing and they're selling raffle tickets. I didn't wanna buy a ticket and yet they kept pestering me. So to get them off my case, I said, here you go, give me one ticket, leave me alone. I'm 10 years old, uh, you know, this was probably a, le less, a lot less refined than I am now. Um, and they, so get the ticket and completely forget about it. Later on in the day, they're calling out um, numbers for the winners of this, of this particular hamper and no one's going to collect this hamper. I remember Right, I bought, a, I bought one of these tickets. So I dig into my pocket, have a look at the number, I'm the winner, how good's that? Excellent, so stoked. I am literally the happiest person in the world at the moment, at that time. And um, I, the, for the rest of the day, I was just really enjoying sitting next to my hamper and realizing that I'm gonna be able to take this home at the end of the day. While I'm sitting there chuffed, these two kids come back selling tickets again. There's another hamper to be won at the end of the day. And because I've always been really good at math and I've been super wise, I sort of did the odds and I was like, take all my money. So I bought as many tickets as I could because that's the right thing to do, right? I thought if I bought one ticket and I want a hamper, how much more likely am I to win the next hamper if I buy five tickets? Didn't win. So I 
Spent a year thinking about that. Next market day, grade six, here we go. I think I've figured this out. And kids come around, raffle ticket, I know exactly what I need to do. Act disinterested, give them $2, get one ticket and then win, perfect. That's how it happened last time, it's gonna happen again. I'm trusting God with the odds now. I couldn't think about anything else for the rest of the day, just whether I'm gonna win this hamper. And in the end, I, nothing. See, we're, we're superstitious people. We try and crack the code. We, we try and make deals with God to get the things that we want. 38 years, this guy is lame. How many deals do you think he's made with God? If I can just get into the pool at the right time, how many positions would he have tried to enter in from? He tells Jesus there is no one to carry him in. Probably because the guy who was carrying him in for the last 37 years decided, hey, this is, this is it, I'm done. That's not what the text said, I just made that up, sorry. But sometimes we can think about God in, in this way, right? As if God is far off. He throws us a bone every now and then. What we've gotta do is just make sure we're in the right place at the right time. Superstition is this. It's dealing with an impersonal God. It's a contractual God. If I do these things in a certain way, then I'll tap into some hidden reality. Then I'll get what I want. If you could just figure out the right combination or process, then we'll have what we want. The next thing we know, 38 years of our life has passed to the God of wishful thinking and we're still waiting. So what does Jesus have for this man who's been waiting for 38 years? Jesus learns about the man's situation. He hears about his life and he's clearly filled with compassion for him. He says, do you want to get well? That's literally the question that he asks him. And the guy responds, I can't, there's no one here to help me. When I try myself to get in, I can't get there in time. His, you, can, you have a sense, his faith in this false God of luck is dying. It's been 38 years, despair is setting in. The superstitious hope that he once had seems to be draining away. But as this false hope dies along with his false God, Jesus is ready and waiting to reveal the true God to offer him life. So Jesus says to him in verse eight, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. And then Jesus slips into the crowd and the guy who got healed doesn't even know his name. 
There's a danger here to think that that's the extent of the sign. The man got healed after 38 years and then he lived happily ever after. But that's not the end of the story. Winning the hamper doesn't necessarily help you to know who God is. Sometimes it just makes us double down on worse ways of living. That's what I did when I was 10, throwing all my money away, $10, and developing this wrong, superstitious idea of who God was. But Jesus is committed to revealing who God really is. So there's a follow-up. It says, Jesus found the man in the temple. He was looking for the guy. And I guess you could say that Jesus always finds who he's looking for. So the man's in the temple, which, which is probably a, a pretty uh, place where you'd expect him to be given that he's recently been healed. And Jesus says, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Pretty good icebreaker. What is he saying though? Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. What he's saying is stop sinning or you may become like the others that we're gonna see in this story who don't really know me either. The ones who are more concerned about following rules than about experiencing the power of God. So we see as we, as we come to look at what Jesus is trying to bring to the surface, stop sinning or something worse may happen. Jesus has just healed this man to free him from his superstition, from his false contractual God. So the last thing that Jesus means when he's telling this guy to stop sinning is for him to adopt a new type of superstition. Do this so that bad things won't happen to you, this system of thinking. Jesus is actually revealing himself to the man again so that he can know who God really is. It's not just some chance encounter to be wished for, but the personal God of the universe always working to make himself known and present. Jesus is challenging the ideas of our false securities, of our false gods, so that we can turn away from them and see him for who he is, the only true source of eternal life. He's not saying, if you don't do these particular things, then you'll have life. But that's exactly what we can easily think. We saw that the healing happened on the Sabbath. Jesus tells the guy, pick up his mat and walk. And he does. But then the Jews see him and they challenge him. It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. And then we read further down that because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, 
the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the response of another sign of death. The people around the healed man, the Jews, they, they know that God isn't an impersonal slot machine. They have a history, a narrative of who God is. They know that God is holy. He's unlike any other. They feel like they've got a very good grasp on that, of who he is. They know God so well, but when Jesus is standing right in front of them, when they see his miracles, they don't recognize that he's God. Do you see, this is crazy. How is this possible that people who claim to know God well don't know him at all? Something's clearly wrong with their understanding of who God is. Somehow they also have a false image of God. Part of the problem here is that they have a wrong understanding. This is specific to them, a wrong understanding of God's holiness, of what it means to be holy. They have laws that make them holy, that set them apart from others around them, that make them what they believe God is like. Keeping the Sabbath is one of these laws. It's one of the 10 commandments that, that comes from the, the seven days of creation. On the seventh day, God rested. And so we need to rest on the seventh day. This is the commandment. But then they take it a step further. They create lists of the things that you can't do on the Sabbath. I've actually got a list of 40 things here, which I won't read to you. All the things that you, they can't do to define them as holy. So, so they become self-righteous. They believe it's their uniqueness, their difference to everyone else that makes them valuable and like God. They begin to define more and more ways of being unique, of being original, unlike other people. Does this ring a bell in our society? Does this ring a bell in our own lives? That's how we feel valuable, to be unique, different. They cut themselves off from certain types of people in society, the marginalized, the poor, the less savory types, people who don't have the same views, they become judgmental. This is who they become because this is how they see God. Instead of them becoming like God, they've made a God who is like them. So when they see Jesus breaking one of these laws or hanging out with the marginalized or the, the unclean people, the sinners, in their minds, 
Jesus cannot be God. God steers clear of sinners, doesn't he? You see the problem here? All the right things that they're doing, all the the rules that they were keeping to make them like God were based on a wrong understanding of who God is. They ended up twisting their view of God to look like themselves. The Bible gives us a picture of who God is because God wants to reveal himself to us. Because for us to know him is to be near him. To know him is to have life. That's what he wants for us. Jesus actually says this exactly in John 17, three. He says this, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The whole reason Jesus came to earth is to reveal God to us, to show us who God really is so that we can have eternal life by knowing him. How can we be like him without knowing him? We can't. Jesus needs to be the one who shapes our understanding about who God is. Jesus is the only one who can reveal God truly. He's the only one who can help us to know him and have eternal life in knowing him. So again, what is Jesus warning against? the sin that will lead to something worse happening. John 15, 24 puts it like this. This is Jesus speaking again. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles and yet they have hated both me and my father. This is the essence of sin. To see the power of God at work through Jesus and yet refuse to acknowledge that power, that power as evidence of the self-revealing action of God in Jesus. Long sentence. <laughs> it's to not believe, this is what it is, to not believe in Jesus as the revelation of God to not allow our false ideas of God to die as we look at Jesus. That is the essence of sin here. If we don't believe in Jesus as God, we are rejecting life. It's time to check our pulse. If we don't believe in Jesus, if we don't allow him to take the place of our wrong ideas about who God is, something worse is already happening. We're dying. This is the test. If you believe in Jesus, if you accept him for who he is, if you look to him, if you fix your eyes on him, if you put your trust 
and your hope in Him, then you'll start to see the false gods in your life die and the true life, the very spirit of Jesus taking their place. How do we, how do we practically do this? How do we make sure that we, that we know God, that we're getting to know Him more and more? We don't keep engaging with the false images of God that we've had in the past. When they're exposed by Jesus, we do not go back to them. If we can learn one thing about ourselves from this interaction that Jesus is having in this situation, it's that we can't trust ourselves to know who God is. We desperately need someone to show us who he is. Jesus' very mission is precisely this. He's committed to revealing the fullness of who God is. One of the commentators on this passage puts it really well like this. He says, it is because we believe in Christ that we distrust ourselves knowing full well that we continually need him even as he continually works. As we allow Jesus to shape our knowledge of who God is, we find that he begins to take his rightful place in our lives. Things begin to change. We begin to see the signs of life. Do you know what's actually so incredible about this particular event. Usually when Jesus is performing miracles, we hear of people running towards him, shouting out, begging, pushing through uh, crowds, climbing trees just to get a glimpse or a touch of him. They're incredible stories of what our hearts should be like, to want to see Jesus at all costs, to have him work in our lives to bring life. But that's not the full story. This healing of the lame man is one of the first signs that we get showing us what Jesus is like, seeking out the people who are lost, who are dying, whose vital signs are critical. Ultimately, Jesus in this, parable, in this story is revealing a God who is doing everything for us to know him so that we can have life in him. He's searching out the guy. He's going to the lame man. So how can we allow Jesus to reveal God to us in our lives? We've seen the sign of life is that he's doing everything necessary to give us the right view of who God is. His call to us is to put him front and center. So how do we do that? Here are a few, just a few practical ways that we can do that. Commit to knowing Jesus through the gospels. The gospels are the narrative of what God is doing in this world, the culmination, the end result 
of what he's done, reconciling the world to himself by revealing who he is. Soak yourselves in these accounts. Call on his spirit. His spirit is committed to revealing himself through the scriptures. And as you do that, be prepared as the the false gods in your life are exposed to leave them behind as you begin to see where life truly is. Another thing, don't trust yourself. Commit to getting around people who have a heart, a passion, a love for Jesus. As you see who Jesus is in the gospels, as you get to know him, you'll start to get a feel for these people. People who have his spirit in them. They don't have to be perfect, but you'll be able to tell that they have life coursing through their veins. People who love Jesus are committed to him. They always want to know him more, more and more, and they want others to come and know him as well, to find the life, the same life that they have found. Commit to prayer. Open up your heart to him. Confess your sins of setting up false securities, false gods in your life. Ask him for his spirit to give you the eyes to see him as he truly is. Be open, look for ways to meet him. Desire to meet him. He's already looking for you and he always finds who he's looking for. I wanna be really clear here. It's not doing these things that's gonna make you like God. It's opening up the space so that you can turn your eyes to look at Jesus. So that we can know him and be transformed by him. He's not the one who's holding life back from us. He's done everything necessary for us to know who he truly is. So as we come to a close, this is the challenge for us. Do we know God? Are we trusting ourselves? Do we have a false image? Are we trusting in a false image? This is the opportunity to realign, to look at Jesus, to put him front and center. If, if you have any sense in your, in your life or, or if you have any sense now that the life you've been living, it might, you, might, you might have been a Christian your whole life. You might be new to Christianity. You might be exploring the journey. Wherever you are, if you feel like you're just living life, you're doing all the good things, you're doing all the right things, you're checking the boxes, but you sense that there's a dryness, that there's a lack of joy. Life is draining from you rather than welling up from within you. If that's you, this is a, this is a time as we come to worship, 
to fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the God who has served you to the point of his own death so that you can know who he is. Not so that you can have what you want now because that might lead to death, but he wants to transform your desires so that you want him and him alone and more of him because that's where life is. Do you wanna be truly alive? Do you wanna live for Him? I wanna tell you tonight, there is no upper limit to the life that is in God. There's no upper limit to who He is. There's everlasting joy upon joy. Knowing Him, the one who's given Himself for you, is to know life. This is the opportunity. I'm hungry, there's never enough life. I'm ready to move more and more into the life that He has. Is that what we want? Are we ready to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? Let me pray for us. Father, Thank you. Thank you that you are seeking us out. You came to earth for us. You desired to find us and you find the people you are looking for. You're presenting yourself here tonight. You're here by your spirit tonight. You want us to know more of you. You don't want us to live in the old way of life that leads to death. You don't want our lives to be drained. You want, us to, fill, you want to fill us to overflowing by your Spirit through knowing you. Oh, Father, bring us to that place. Jesus is set before us. Give us eyes to see. Open up our eyes by your Spirit. We come to you now. Oh, we long for you. Thank you that you're ready to meet us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue to worship, this is a time where if you ever had a sense at all that there's more, there's more. You, you, might, have been, you might be a Christian. You, you, you might have been a Christian for 38 years. You might be a Christian for 60 years, maybe for one year. You might not be a Christian. This is an opportunity. If you wanna come down, if you wanna come forward, if you want prayer, if you just wanna say, God, I want more. I don't wanna settle for less. There's more, there is more. Feel free to come down and, and, and get prayed for. It's not a specific situation. There may be a specific situation and, we'll, and we'd love to pray for that. But if there's just a sense, I, I, I need more. I need life and life to the full. Let's do that, church. Let's stand together as we worship our great God, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Father, we thank You tonight. Thank You so much, Lord, that as we surrender our lives and hearts to You, we experience life and life to the full, the abundant life. The enemy comes to steal, kill and destroy, but You have come that they may have life and life to the full. 
for some here tonight that may be for the very first time encountering you saying, yes, Lord, I want to I know what it's like to have a relationship with you. For some of us here tonight, I just know at the bottom of my heart that some have said, yeah, I know I need to surrender this, this area, surrendering this afresh to you, great God, and I thank you for that. So we just respond to you tonight, but not just tonight, this week and this year and the remainder of our lives, continuing to surrender and yield to your plans and your purposes, knowing that in you there is life, true life, true life and abundance in you, great God. So we thank you tonight. What a great word. What a great message. Thank you that you're with us, you're for us, and uh, you never forsake us, never leave us, great God. What a promise. We love you, Lord. Guide us and lead us this week, we pray. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty and precious name. Amen. Amen. Hey, it has been so good to have you here tonight. So good to have you online as well. Um, but I do pray this week as you continue to surrender to Him, follow His leading and guidance, that you'd experience the power of Him in and through your life, wherever you are and whatever you're doing this week, I pray. So God bless you so much. It'd be awesome to have you here next Sunday. Uh, have an awesome week and we'll see you soon. God bless.